maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligent Squared, the podcast where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. Coming up, we've got a debate that's divided countries, namely the UK and Greece, historians, curators, and public opinion. Should the Parthenon marbles be sent back to Greece? The Parthenon marbles are, of course, a collection of ancient Greek sculptures originally housed within the Parthenon, part of the Acropolis, that iconic structure on a hilltop in Athens. You may have heard them often referred to as the Elgin marbles too, having been transported, some might use the word pilfered, others might say preserved, under the direction of Thomas Bruce, the seventh Earl of Elgin, back to Britain in the 19th century. They've spent much of their modern day lifetime in the British Museum, which now often has to deal with the thorny topic of what to do with them. Our host today is Manveen Rana, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Stories of Our Times. She was joined by former Conservative Minister, Ed Vasey, and academic and author, Sir Noel Malcolm, for this debate in front of a live online audience. It's a lively one. But did you know, if you're an Intelligence Squared member, you can get the whole thing and obviously find out the all-important result too. Head to intelligencesquared.com forward slash membership to sign up and you'll get the extended version of this chat plus some pretty hefty extra content, including our new series on AI, Power Trip, themed episode bundles, ad-free listening and updates on our live events too. Or hit subscribe on Apple for the full audio. Now let's join Manveen Rana with more. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared online debate for the motion, the Parthenon marbles should be sent back to Greece. In a moment, we'll hear from our two debaters who are going to make their opening speeches, and then I'll chair a a little debate between the two of them, but I will make sure that we have time for your questions, so please do send them in for either speaker or both. And then we'll invite you to make your final vote 
and we should be able to show you the result of our opening vote shortly. But here we are, just freshly in. Um, for the motion, the Parthenon marbles should be sent back to Greece. As things stand, we have 81% of you for, just 17% against, and 2% undecided. So that's quite um, that's quite a de decisive vote so far, but let's see how the, the evening pans out. Um, I want to begin by uh, inviting our first speaker to, to join us. This is Ed Vasey, Lord Vasey of Didcot, who's a former Conservative government minister who was in charge of culture and digital matters from 2010 to 2016, becoming the longest serving minister in that role. He's now an advisor to a number of companies, tech funds and tech startups. He writes and broadcasts regularly on politics and culture. And he presents his own show on Times Radio every Friday evening, which I can't recommend enough. Uh, Ed, please do make your opening argument. Uh, thanks uh, very much, Mervyn. Uh, that is obviously a terrible uh, result in the ballot that Intelligence Squared has just conducted because the only way is down for me with such a <laughs> resounding early victory. It can only go horribly uh, wrong. And I have debated uh, Noel on this topic before and I know uh, how articulate and forceful uh, he will be in his uh, arguments. I uh, came on board something called the Parthenon Project about two years ago, which is a campaign to reunify the Parthenon sculptures. But it's an enlightened campaign with um, lots of uh, opportunities for both sides, both the British uh, and the Greeks, going forward. Uh, as culture minister, I'm afraid I took the very traditional position of arguing that the Parthenon sculptures belong to the British Museum and the Greeks should have nothing to do with them. And I fell for the seductive arguments of the then director of the British Museum, uh, Ian McGregor, uh, who talked about the British Museum being a world museum and that more people could see the Parthenon sculptures in the British Museum and also compare them to other civilizations. But once I was free from the constraints of government and uh, started to think more deeply about the subject, I've come to the resounding conclusion, which only becomes more forceful uh, with every debate I have, that um, the return of the Parthenon sculptures is, is an unanswerable case, but also a huge opportunity for all the different sides involved. I think when we talk about the Parthenon sculptures, we're talking about the frieze that surrounded uh, the Parthenon. And what we're really talking about is the reunification uh, of a unique piece of art. The Parthenon frieze is like a, a scene from a movie. It's a huge procession, a celebration procession. And it has been rent asunder and split in two, uh, half of it, or what remains of it, half of it remains in Athens and half of it sits uh, in the British uh, Museum. And the time has now come to reunite this unique piece of work and also to reunite it in the place where it was created uh, and first, as it were, exhibited in Athens. It's time to see the whole thing as it is, as it survives. And once you've looked at it, to be able to look out of the window and see the Acropolis uh, where it first um, appeared. Um, I think that it's important to state that the Parthenon Project has some very thoughtful views on how this could be achieved. It does, for example, uh, talk about the potential of setting up an independent trust which could own the Parthenon sculptures. So you could, as it were, park the ownership question of whether it should be returned to Greece or stay in the ownership of the British Museum, which so often diverts the argument. 
And that trust itself could raise money. It could raise money for scholarship. It could fund student bursaries. Uh, and it could become a very exciting, effectively uh, shared endeavor between the British uh, and the Greeks, who in all other circumstances uh, do rather like each other and enjoy each other's culture and civilization. It's also the case that um, the Greek government has indicated, it's not official policy, but it's indicated that were the British Museum to move on this issue, the opportunity to take some iconic objects from Athens and exhibit them in the British Museum uh, would present itself. So far from losing the sculptures, as it were, the British Museum would gain access to a treasure trove of exhibits which you could regularly display in the British Museum to the delectation of all its visitors. There are obviously lots of arguments against returning the Parthenon sculptures that Noel Malcolm and others who take his view uh, regularly posit. The most obvious argument is that the uh, Parthenon sculptures were legitimately acquired by Lord Elgin. Uh, it was a straightforward contract. They were purchased just like you would purchase a Titian uh, or a Rembrandt, and there you have it. I very much doubt that the purchase was in any way legal, but it was certainly in many respects under duress. It was made with the uh, occupying Ottoman forces. It was made by a man who was the British ambassador at a time when the Turks wanted British support. Uh, arguably, the agreement, even with the Turkish authorities, was simply to sketch and draw uh, the sculptures, not to forcibly remove them. When they were removed, uh, many of them were damaged. Uh, and indeed, the original intention of Lord Elgin, of course, was to display them in his own estate. The only reason they came into the possession of the British Museum was because Lord Elgin went bankrupt uh, and he also wanted an English peerage. Uh, and that is the reason why they ended up in uh, the British Museum by dint of an act of parliament. And of course, at the time, it was still highly controversial and wildly uh, debated at the time. It wasn't a, uh, a, a unanimous view of the British public at the time that we were right to acquire them. There is also an argument which I find profoundly patronising, which is still used uh, to this day, which somehow depicts the Greeks as somehow not capable of looking after their own uh, heritage. It's often uh, the point is made that there was an explosion at the Acropolis when the Venetians were storing uh, ammunition there. That happened uh, about 150 years before Lord Elgin acquired uh, the sculptures. Uh, and in any event, the sculptures that he so kindly left behind did survive and find their, themselves in the Acropolis uh, Museum, a state-of-the-art modern museum where they are extremely well cared for. And it's certainly not the case that the British Museum looked after the sculptures when they acquired them. Uh, the notorious fraudster and arts dealer Duveen, who's uh, after whom the galleries in which the Parthenon sculptures reside is named, uh, had them scrubbed clean, freshly white, uh, in order to be displayed. Uh, and in my view, they're not particularly well displayed uh, in any event. And there's certainly no uh, question that the British Museum can be regarded as having been a careful steward of the sculptures they have. Uh, we know that the British Museum has been in the news uh, recently uh, because of the theft of many uh, artefacts. I would not run this argument uh, as another argument to return the Parthenon sculptures, but I would say uh, perhaps that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And the argument that somehow the Greeks are not capable of looking after their own heritage, I think is severely weakened uh, if it's made by a museum that hasn't necessarily shown that it is capable of caring uh, for its own collection. 
So I'm not going to use that against the British Museum, but equally I hope that argument will now be properly uh, dropped. Another odd argument that is sometimes used, and it used, was used by David Cameron when he was asked about this, and it's often used by uh, other prime ministers who are always doorstepped about this issue, uh, is that this would be the uh, start of a slippery uh, slope uh, that uh, somehow all museums would be denuded of their collections. Uh, a good comparison would be the V&A, which is very prominent in this issue of restitution, which says it's received nine restitution claims uh, uh, for its 2.7 million objects that it has in its possession, nine restitution claims in the last 20 years. But the restitution issue is extremely easy to deal with. You, you simply set up an independent committee that can give advice to museums, which doesn't need to be binding on any uh, restitution claim that they uh, receive. We do for uh, Nazi art. Uh, we have the Spoliation Committee, which quite rightly looks at the provenance of art that may have been acquired uh, illegally by the Nazis. We do it. We have the Reviewing Committee for the Export of Works of Art, which quite rightly uh, stops objects which are deemed to be uh, inherent to British culture from being exported if a public collection can raise the money to uh, purchase them. And that is also a clinching argument for the Parthenon sculptures. If it's okay for us to set up a committee that recognises that there are objects in this country which are inherently part of our culture, we must therefore accept the argument that there are some objects in our museum which are inherently tied to the culture of other countries, including nations as friendly as, uh, as the Greeks. The Parthenon sculptures are a pretty unique uh, issue. Uh, the Greeks have been asking for them back since independence. For some 200 years, the Greeks have asked politely for those, these objects to be returned. They need to be reunited with their brothers and sisters in the Acropolis Museum. The surviving elements of the Parthenon frieze need to be seen as one unified work of art in the place where they were created, in the place where they were displayed, and a museum that is worthy of them, uh, uh, supervised by a government that is a worthy keeper of them, uh, with the opportunity for the British and the Greeks to work together on scholarship and support for this unique cultural object. Thank you, Lord Faisy, for putting forward the argument for why we should be sending the Parthenon marbles back to Greece uh, and also describing so well the clarity that comes from leaving government. Um, I'd now like to call on our second guest tonight to oppose the motion uh, and I'm delighted that we're joined by Sir, Sir Noel Malcolm who couldn't have got a better write-up than he did from Ed Vasey there um, but who is a senior research fellow at All Souls College, Oxford He's a former political columnist and foreign editor of The Spectator, and his recent publications include a book about human rights law and the philosophy of human rights, a history of Western ideas about the Ottoman Empire, and an account of Ali Pasha's diplomacy during the Napoleonic Wars. So a complete polymath, and we're delighted he can join us. Well, thank you, Manveen, for those kind words, and indeed, thank you, Ed. Um, <clears throat> a couple of very general points to begin with. Uh, I know some people have a sort of principled objection to the phrase Elgin marbles. Um, I will use it from time to time. I'm not trying to rile anyone. It's just the traditional phrase. And sometimes it's 
convenient to know that we're talking about the Elgin marbles in the British Museum, not Parthen sculptures generally, which are in London, they're in Athens, and there are some scattered around other museums as well. So I may mostly call them the marbles. The other general point is just I'm aware that, particularly in recent years, this issue has been rather hyped up into a sort of culture wars issue. And I just want to say I really don't approach it in that spirit. It's a complicated issue. There are uh, not least important historical issues that need to be addressed. There are various matters of principle that arise. Um, I don't see this as something on which the forces of good are on one side. I know plenty of very reasonable people who disagree with me, and there are arguments on the other side uh, that I've taken note of carefully. I think just under the surface, there may be some deeper divisions of people's assumptions, perhaps nowadays about the role of the so-called universal museums, and perhaps also more generally about attitudes to the distant past, to perceived wrongs, and the sense of what we should do about them. And <clears throat> if I have time, I'll touch on both of those. I think they are important, but I don't see people who disagree even on those things as automatically enemies in a culture war. <clears throat> so I said there were historical issues. The first is the basic one, which is the foundation of the Greek government's view. Um, on all their official um, statements, they say this was theft. And um, Ed has rather supported that, um, questioning whether Elgin got any sort of proper permission. Um, <clears throat> Uh, he also said Elgin purchased them, but that's not true. There was no purchase from the Ottomans. He got permission to remove stones uh, from the Acropolis. We have a contemporary translation of that official document. It's quite clear that it allowed him to remove stones. Uh, he cooperated with the local authorities in Athens. He had to. He had to hire hundreds of men uh, at some point and taking them down to the port at Piraeus. Uh, this was all done in plain view, and the Ottoman authorities allowed it to happen. Uh, it's sometimes said, and I think Ed touched on this too, that perhaps he went beyond the terms of the permission. He was only permitted to draw, uh, take mouldings, and so on. No, he actually got written permission to take away some stones, and uh, he did so. Now, of course, the immediate response to that is, well, so what? Permission from the Ottomans, I think Ed used the phrase, the occupiers, uh, invaders. Well, we're in 1801 when this story starts, and they were invaders in this part of Greece in about 1458. So we're talking about an absolutely settled state, 350 years. Um, it's not as if, you know, they're occupying a Greek state. There was no functioning Greek state when they arrived. What they replaced was ruled by so-called Frankish, i.e. Western European feudal lords who were Catholics and uh, had a very different culture from the Greeks. And then before those, you go back to the Byzantine Empire. There, there was not a functioning Greek state that you could say, oh, well, this was occupied and you should have got their permission. <clears throat> if you say, well, you should get the permission of the Greek community, but how would you do that in 1801 in Athens? Uh, there's no constitutional way of doing that. There are community leaders called Archons, and they did cooperate with Elgin's workmen, uh, one of them, admittedly, he was British consul at the time, but um, there's no record of them objecting 
uh, to this whole process as it went on year after year. And the person with the greatest moral authority for the Greek community, one might say their representative, was the archbishop, the orthodox archbishop. And he was happy to co cooperate with Elgin's men, and he even volunteered his services finding <clears throat> ancient, in his eyes, pagan sculptures for them. So that's the first historical point. The second is you need to think of the Parthenon rather differently from the way you think of it today. It was a massive ruin, much, much more ruined than it is today. A lot of what you see now is the result of reconstruction um, columns put up in the 1840s, big reconstruction in the early 20th century. It was, as Ed said, blown apart by a massive explosion in 1687. It was actually the Ottomans who had the, uh, the uh, gunpowder there and the Venetians who uh, set it off with a, well, unlucky shot. Massive explosion. A lot of the sculptures were destroyed on the spot. Many were blown off the building, uh, partly shattered. Some were in recognisable bits. They lay in rubble. Uh, and when Elgin got there, you had this ruin with bits still falling off, sometimes dropping off in storms. And some of the sculptures he obtained were dug up from the rubble, where Greek stonemasons were often just taking bits of sculptures and melting them down into lime or chopping up bits of them in order to make ordinary houses in, in Athens. So he was actually saving sculptures from destruction. That's a fundamental point. And that was his principal motive. Um, the, we have the evidence of the rate of destruction, and it's shocking. Just very briefly, in the middle of the 18th century, so 52 years before his men arrived, there were 12 large sculpted figures on the western end of the Parthenon. By the time his men arrived, there were four in just 52 years. I mean, that's a massive rate of destruction. Um, and on top of that, there were Muslims taking pot shots at figures. Uh, there were people casually defacing sculpted figures. Um, and there were tourists now who uh, would uh, buy little bits and pieces to take home as souvenirs. Uh, and his men were shocked by that, told him. And so he used the permission he'd got to the maximum to take away as much as he could. <clears throat> I feel I'm very close to my time limit, however, but just to touch on the two deeper issues I mentioned. Uh, Ed was rather casual in his dismissal of the idea of a universal museum, um, brushing aside the defense of it by Neil McGregor. I think there is a lot to be said for a universal or encyclopedic museum that presents people with world culture across the great civilizations. And the British Museum is one of those par excellence. There's more we could say about that. But I think what he called the pointless slippery slope argument, it hasn't applied to a lot of the particular things that other museums have sent back to their origins so far. But anything as massive and headline-grabbing as the uh, Elgin marbles would, I think, have a large effect. And the other general point, and then I'll stop, is about our attitude to the past. And it's difficult to capture this just in a few soundbite sentences. But when I read in the newspaper, and it was in the newspaper yesterday, about um, a Jewish family whose paintings were confiscated or stolen by the Nazis, finally getting them back, my blood boils with indignation that you know, they've had to wait so long to get this. This was monstrous theft by a monstrous regime. Anyway, we can all feel deep human indignation about that. But when I go to the Louvre in Paris and I look at some of the great paintings stolen by Napoleon's troops from Italy and never sent back at the end of the war, my blood does not boil. Does that mean I'm hypocrite? 
No, I think I'm actually giving the standard reaction, which is the deeper you go into the past, the more differently you have to think about these things. Of course, it was wrong at the time. I'm not saying it was less wrong because it was a long time ago. But the rights and claims that are generated by that wrong gradually change and fade over time. If they didn't, we would all be stuck uh, trying to do compensation for wars centuries ago and all kinds of things that we disapprove of. So I'm just touching on that. Perhaps some of these larger issues will come up in the discussion. Thank you, Sir Noel Malcolm, for setting out the history behind this problem um, so well. We're now going to open up the debate, so please do send in your questions. Uh, You can do that just by putting your question in the box at the bottom of your screen. And if you don't want your name mentioned, please do click on the anonymous button before you send, press send. Um, And you can also tweet us using the hashtag IQ2. Um, Before we get to the audience's questions, though, um, I just wanted to very quickly pick up. Um, Firstly, Sunol, you pointed out the the difficulty of the situation in Athens when these marbles were were brought to Britain, how a lot of the marbles were being broken up. There was lime was being broken up to be used for for homes. Um, There wasn't really a state to ask for permission. Obviously, the situation is very different now. There is a state. There is a a very good way of knowing where Greek public opinion is. uh, And we also know there is a, a, a massive museum. Is the argument now not very different for why we should be sending them back? Oh, there is certainly a Greek state now, obviously, um, since the 1830s. And um, that state, as I said at the beginning, makes as the foundation of its position on this issue the claim that Elgin simply stole the marbles. They they really do emphasize that, you know, just... Recently, well, several times this year, we've had official statements from the Greek Ministry of Culture. So I'm not wandering off into some sort of bypass in the in the distant past by by saying that is wrong. It's fundamental to their argument. Now, people have said, well, for heaven's sake, if only Elgin had waited um, by the by the 1830s, the problem would have disappeared, and then there was a Greek state. It would care about the Parthenon as it did. But he couldn't predict that. Nobody could have predicted that. They would have thought that the Ottoman Empire could last for another 100 years, which it did in other parts of the Balkans. Um, So that was, you know, none of this changes the reasonableness of what he did. On your question about the the situation being different now, well, yes, of course. Um, In response to Ed, I would say, I don't think anyone now uses the argument, oh, the Greeks can't look after archaeological exhibits or statues and so on. Um, And certainly, it's true that until the new Acropolis Museum was built, it was not unreasonable to say, well, but they wouldn't have a proper museum to put them in because the old Acropolis Museum was very small. It couldn't really take, you know, this huge quantity and display them properly. No, that problem has gone away. So nobody, I think, is saying, oh, the Greeks can't look after these things. Um, But the arguments never rested simply on the claim that they couldn't or that they didn't have room. They rest on a wide range of issues, and I've only just touched on a few of them. But if, if, as you say, there wasn't actually a purchase, and this was much more a caretaker arrangement of making sure that the marbles were well looked after and on display elsewhere, is it not now time to stop the caretaker role? Well, caretaker in a sense for... How would it have been put at the time? For Western civilization. I mean, 
the, the, the reason why people valued ancient Greek art was it was seen as foundational to Western civilization. Um, and this is not irrelevant either if we're talking about the creation of a Greek state. Greece got in first with massive help from Western powers long before other states were thought worth supporting, even though they were Christian, I mean, would-be states in the, in the Ottoman Empire. Why? Because the educated classes, people like Elgin, had been brought up on the classics and they were Philhellenes. They, they were just, you know, Greek lovers with an idea of the importance of this. So this contributed to the existence of a Greek state. He was exemplifying that himself. And Ed, um, Noel made a very compelling argument there about the idea of having a universal museum, about being able to display different eras in human history alongside each other. Is, is there not something in that? As, as the man who used to be in charge of museums here, um, it's a hard argument to, to be against. Uh, it is a hard argument to be against. It's one that the British Museum uses and indeed argues that many more countries are now getting into the game uh, of the uh, Universal Museum. Uh, I think that um, the British Museum is stuffed to the gills uh, with Greek uh, artefacts. The idea that it couldn't display uh, objects that illustrate the genius of uh, ancient Greek civilization if it didn't have the Elgin marbles or Parthenon sculptures is utterly uh, ludicrous. And what we're talking about, as I say, it's very important to focus on the objects themselves, to reunify. It's called reunification for a reason. It's reunifying two pieces of a seamless piece of art which have been unjustly torn asunder. And the idea that you couldn't wander into the British Museum in the future and see some incredible objects uh, is for the birds. But it's also worth reminding people that Parthenon Project itself wants a win-win. It's the first time, as it were, the Greeks in general have said, if we can uh, get the Parthenon sculptures reunited in the place where they were created, we would recognise that as a hugely magnanimous gesture and return. in, in return we would uh, lend some of the iconic objects that you would see in the Acropolis Museum today to uh, the British Museum. And we've gone further at the Parthenon Project to say... Uh, that there should be a sort of joint stewardship, some continued British uh, involvement in the care and scholarship around the Parthenon sculptures. But the British Museum will always be a universal museum, regardless of whether it retains the Parthenon sculptures. You talk about reunification of these sculptures uh, and how they've been unjustly torn asunder. Is there an argument, though, that in a way, that has now become a part of their history. You know, we see great monuments that have been destroyed by all, damaged by walls that have followed many, many, many centuries later. And you still preserve sometimes the damage that has been done because it records another era of history. It, how, how, do you, how do you get around that with the Parthen marbles? Do they, do they not have a chapter now which belongs to Britain? They do have a chapter to belong to Britain, which is why we are proposing this uh, sort of independent trust, which would have British uh, involvement. And we do recognise that the Parthenon sculptures have played an important part in uh, British history and what Noel talks about in terms of uh, Philhellenism and so on, and the uh, importance of classical architecture uh, in in Britain. But um, as I say, this is a unique work of art, which deserves to be seen, the original work of art, be, to be seen in its entirety, uh, in one place, and that should be uh, in Athens. Uh, but that does not mean that we can't recognise the role the sculptures have played in 
British history. So I, I do just want to address a couple of points that Noel did make as well. The, the one that sort of drives me slightly round the bend is this depiction of kind of uh, crazed locals kind of taking pot shots <laughs> at the Acropolis because it goes back to my opening argument. If Noel was right about that, there wouldn't be any Parthenon sculptures left in Athens. It's quite obvious that he's exaggerating uh, this kind of ludicrous scene of people trying to sort of smash them. The only people who vandalised uh, directly the sculptures were Lord Elgin and his band of merry men who literally tore them, hacked them, hacked them off the side of the Acropolis, many of which, some of which fell to the ground and were smashed. It's also completely untrue to say that the firm and the warrant gave Elgin permission to remove them. Uh, it's quite clear from the translation that Elgin had permission uh, to grub around in the ground and pick up objects. He did not have permission to chisel them off the side of the building. And I also take great issue with Noel depicting this kind of sort of bureaucratic European Union style importation certificate as Lord Elgin trundled them down to the harbour. You know, the idea that a few bribes weren't uh, finding their way into the hands of the watching Turks is, uh, again, utterly ludicrous, uh, you know, or that VAT and import charges were being paid. Uh, it was quite clear what he was up to, and he wanted to display them in his country estate where none of us would have seen them if he hadn't gone bankrupt. Noel, do you want to come back on that? How did you guess? Yes. Um, the pod shots, I'm not making up things. There are witnesses at the time who described this, and I'm not talking so much about crazed locals. I'm talking about janissaries who were peasant soldiers in the Ottoman army. But why have we got any Parthenon sculptures left? Um, I'm talking about a musket shot. I'm not, you know, these things were quite high up on a wall. Um, these, you know, we have descriptions of this. There's a lot of damage to the ones that remained. Now, we don't, we, we can't get ballistics experts in to tell us how much of that was by muskets fired by janissaries for fun, how much of it by the bombardment of the Acropolis by Greek forces in 1821 when they were lobbing mortar shells into the Acropolis uh, on a daily basis, or how much by the bombardment by the Ottomans in 1826 to 1827 when the Acropolis was under bombardment for nearly a year. Um, but we do know that from witnesses that this was happening. Secondly, on the Fairman, I'm sorry, the, the, we have the wording of the Fairman in the it contemporary Italian translation by a professional translator in Istanbul at the time. And it doesn't say you can only take bits of stone that were found in the ground. Uh, it doesn't specify where the bits of stone came from. It just says you can take bits of stone away. And finally, on taking things, I don't know where this all this EU VAT stuff comes from. I don't think it arises from anything I said. Um, but you used, you threw in the word bribes. We've known since 1816 that bribes were used because that's discussed in the select committee report of the House of Commons. Um, this was how things were done in the Ottoman Empire. He couldn't have got his men in at the beginning just to make drawings without paying bribes to the military commander of the fortress. So there's nothing um, particularly shock shocking about that. It was just normality, I'm afraid. Is that a process you feel entirely comfortable with? The bribes, the, the permission from the British consul? The, no, the British consul wasn't giving permission. I mean, he wasn't in a position to do that, but he was cooperating as, so far as we can tell, were the other Archons and very strongly the Archbishop. Do I feel comfortable about bribery? Well, is, is, that, is that a legitimate vote from the, from the Greek people if one of the people consulted was the British consul? Um, he was one of the Archons of the city. I mean, I was just saying at that point in my introduction, 
how, in, in what possible way would we say, well, what represented the community? Well, it had these the small number of community leaders called Arfons, and it had an archbishop. I was saying, we, we don't know, you know, they weren't writing diaries, we can't get into their heads very far, but all the evidence we have suggests that they cooperated, and we do know that the archbishop cooperated very strongly. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion in a special extended edit waiting to dig into for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go, or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.